Hello and welcome to the Healthcare Leadership Excellence Podcast. I'm your host, Carl Easter. I'm an executive coach and a strong advocate of superior leadership. On this podcast, we explore the essence of leadership through interviews and dialogue and provide you with tangible steps you can take to improve your leadership performance. As a best-selling author, John Maxwell says, leadership is about one life influencing another. The stories, experiences, and wisdom you hear throughout each episode will inspire you to step up, lead, and influence those around you. I'd like to welcome you today to this episode of the Healthcare Leadership Excellent Podcast. We really appreciate you being with us for listening in on what we hope to be a very informative topic today. With me is my co-host, Maz Antoline. And Maz, why don't you kick us off? Hello, everyone, and thank you for having me once again in an episode of the Healthcare Leadership Excellence Podcast. Today, Carl, we will be discussing a common theme of yours. We hear you a couple of times teach this principle in your leadership writing and in your LinkedIn writing. It's about acknowledging reality and casting a vision. Before we start with our questions, would you kindly share the background and context and how you came up with that guiding principle? I love the quote, if I see farther than others, it's because I stand on the shoulder of giants. And there's another one that comes from biblical writings of there's nothing new under the sun. So I wish I could say I thought this, uh, but this was from the readings that I do. And it makes entire sense. If someone is really bothered by their current reality, the worst thing we can do, because that kicks in their limbic system, that kicks in their fight or flight. And when someone is in my world as a vortex mode, somebody coming in and saying, oh, I can't wait for tomorrow, just really throws them for a loop. They will just shut down in a heartbeat for a couple of reasons. One, they don't believe you. And number two, they can't believe how insensitive you're being to how sideways they currently are. So it doesn't mean you agree with them. It just means that you come alongside them and acknowledge that, yes, you can easily see how they would be as bothered as they are by their current reality. Completely acknowledge. But as John Maxwell says, you can't be at their level. You can't lift someone up if you're not above their level. Not saying you're better than them. It's just you have a better view. Once you make sure they know that you care about their thinking, then you start saying, not but, don't ever use that word because it deletes anything after that that you've said. It just deletes it. It's the master psychological delete button, those three little letters. And you say, for example, Maz, I can completely understand how upsetting this could be for you. Completely, you've described it well. And I want to share some things with you that might help you feel a little bit better about where we're going. And it's it's magic. That And that but versus and comes from the project on negotiation at Harvard. Key little phrase. So that's the background. I wish it were original with my genius, but it isn't. You say these two phrases as if they can't be apart. So acknowledging reality is not enough. Casting a vision is not enough. So what happens, Carl, if only one of those key um, principles, only one of them 
leaders focus and they completely um, forget the other or completely ignore the other. <laughs> perfect, perfect question. Let's just run the scenario. Again, you've heard some news that the company's not doing well, or you've heard some news that something coming up might really sidetrack the organization you work with. If I just come in and say, oh yeah, Maz, I can completely understand why you're upset. It really is that bad. Um, and I don't know a way out of it. Well, suddenly I'm not a leader. I've just joined you in your misery and tripled your anxiety because if I'm the leader and I'm and the boat's filling up with water and I've stopped bailing, I'm not a leader. I'm now a participant. So that sinks the boat. Equally, if I come in and you share with me how upset you are and what impact this could have on your life. And just truly, I can see on your face, it's not going well. And if I just basically put up my hand and say, and Maz, it's going to be marvelous tomorrow. Like I said earlier, that just, and so many people do that because they think they have to encourage. Yes, they do. Only if you've connected. People will not listen to you if you don't connect with them. And if you've just overlooked all this gut level, instinctual, reptilian brain response by saying, oh, don't worry. I've discredited you because basically I said, Maz, how you're thinking is wrong. That doesn't do anything for anybody. Secondly, you may not be wrong, but I'm going to ignore it anyway. Okay, now you don't trust me. And the minute you dismissed, now anything I say after that, you've just, not consciously because you're a respectful person, but you've just turned that off. And so many leaders come in and they give this marvelous, you know, the little air quotes here, marvelous presentation, and they don't understand why people don't act on it. And it's because, you know, Carl, I didn't hate you before this, but now, you know, I really don't like you at all. And it's not a conscious thought. It's just that I can't trust this person. So I'll go into low gear. I probably won't implement what you're saying because I don't trust you. And it happens in a nanosecond. You say the word trust a couple of times now. And I remember a couple of um, episodes ago, you've mentioned that the perfect time to prepare for crisis to prepare to lead in crisis is way way back when there is no evidence of crisis in your team trust plays a, a huge huge role in um, conveying this message of acknowledging reality and casting a vision so carl what is the role of trust and i'd say trust and um, a healthy work culture when having this um, leadership style of leadership? It's everything. You can have this amazing strategy. In fact, I just wrote a piece on this that I sent over to you uh, either yesterday or this morning of you can have this, to use this metaphor, this magnificent best car in the world. It's the best, most precision driven or designed engine the car is loaded with safety features. 
It's just an amazing vehicle. The seats are soft leather. The, it's just an amazing vehicle. And you get in and you press the start button and nothing happens. And why? Because the gas tank is empty. And that gas tank is trust. And so many people think, well, if we have a good strategy, yes, I love strategy. I love a well-thought plan. But people forget that the plan is taken forward by people. People with a very ancient brain that says, trust or no trust, really fast. And those that trust just have this huge, they want to work for a place that respects them and that they can respect the leaders. And I'm not talking warm, fuzzy, let's just all love each other and we'll make a million dollars. No, we've got to have well-thought business strategy. But it's got to run on the fuel of people that know that they're counted on and that know that they can count on you the, as the leader. Completely agree with what you just said. Thanks for sharing that. The people are, are I agree, the guests that um, fuels all of these amazing strategies that you come up with. Speaking of people, what is the importance of communicating with your people, communicating the vision and making sure that you effectively communicate the message and not just saying it, not just presenting it, but making sure that they do understand your plan and your direction? Again, your questions today, as usual, are excellent. Um, let me just give an example. I was working with a very senior person within his organization. And he said the phrase, it was the very first session of coaching. And this guy has a lot of money riding on his success. And... He said the phrase, Carl, these are adults. I shouldn't have to tell them more than once. And it was, oh, time out, time out, time out. Stop, stop right at that comment. Because if I can stop just that one thing, it's a huge error in thinking. Because let's just, we've all played the game telephone at a party where the first person, there's 20 people around the circle the first person, you give him a card and it says, the white cat sat on the black snow, or the black cat sat on the white snowbank and ate food. Great. By the time it gets to person 20, you can put money on the fact that it will not say what you first said. So, Maz, the CEO, gets up. And she is really excited about this next business quarter and all the things they're doing. And you describe it and you're you're excited. And it's an eight o'clock in the morning meeting. First thing, just to get the people motivated. Well, let's just run some loose statistics here. Half of them have not had the time to stop at Starbucks. Another two or three had a child that didn't sleep well. Another two or three are wondering when you're going to stop talking because they've got a bunch of calls to return since they just got back from vacation. And But you've been thinking about this all morning. And your presentation is marvelous. Um, 
one organization did a study, and again, you can prove anything with statistics, but it, it's worth at least thinking about. The head of the organization gives her talk to the C-suite. By the time the C-suite talks to the senior vice presidents, about 90% of the message is still intact, but you've lost 10. Not bad, nine out of 10. By the time the v senior VPs talk with the other VP and executive director level, we've dropped to about 80. The time that the director levels talk to the supervisors, you've dropped to about 70. By the time the supervisors take it out to Carl on the front line, you're between 50 and 60% of effectiveness, which is not what you want as a CEO. But you walk back to your office thinking, I have given them the message and the inspiration. And you go off thinking you can implement X, Y, and Z. And me on the front lines thinking, oh, okay, this really isn't much different than we're already doing. So I can just keep in my comfort zone and the C-suite, no big deal. How you get around that is realizing that what I just described is entirely accurate. And if you ignore it, you will blow up your new initiative because no one will listen. So you just don't talk as CEO. You don't just talk to the senior leaders. You get out in front of the people. Lou Gerstner took over IBM back in the early 90s. He had never had tech experience. That first year, he logged something like a quarter million miles on the corporate jet, just getting in front of his people, just talking to them. And he was pretty widely criticized because he didn't put out a supervision at first. He said, I just want to find out what's wrong with the company because the company was diving in productivity and product. It was a renowned company, one of the best known in the world, and it was struggling. And he flipped it. There's a book that he wrote and it's called Who Says Elephants Can't Dance? Meaning that this elephant of a huge company completely changed because he didn't stop the vision. He talked and he talked and he talked and he talked about the same thing until people got his point that his new idea wasn't going away. And that's the key. When Maz, the CEO, talks to Carl, the frontline worker, I am really excited about my work. I'm excited about the way I do it. I'm excited. Maybe excited is the wrong word. I'm locked in to how I do it because I do it pretty well. And your new ideas might put me at risk. So unless you repeat them a lot more than once, I'm going to think it's just as they say flavor of the month. So it's got to be same message, different iterations from a whole. You've got to say it to me. My boss has got to say it to me. The other workers need to say it. It's got to be a barrage of newness and iterations so that the Carl Mind says, oh, okay, you're serious about this. I better pay attention. Excellent. Thank you for that. So for my last question here, Carl, I know that you are a lover of history. So can you please provide us with examples from history of leaders who were successful in their leadership and in casting a vision or acknowledging reality and casting a vision and 
you know, um, successful in, in making their people understand. And we know they are successful because we see the impact of these in the people they are they, they led. Yes. Um, going from distant to uh, more recent, the classic of acknowledging reality and casting a vision. And I don't know in history who could beat this, but it's the leader of Great Britain during World War II, Winston Churchill. Um, Churchill was brought in as prime minister in the late uh, 1930s. Um, and in the summer of 1940 is when the German Air Force started what's what was called the Blitzkrieg, the Battle of Britain. And over a period of months, over 90,000 Britons died. 7,000 children died. Just horrible, horrible. The city of Coventry, one of British Britain's crown jewels, was reduced to something like 90% destroyed in one single night. Churchill drove up to Coventry and walked the streets. He did not say, he completely acknowledged it. It was horrible. There was no, in fact, he, his driver and his bodyguard noted in his journal that he slumped in the back seat and wept. But being the leader he was, he was also saying to the House of Commons, which is their ruling body, that this would be known as Britain's finest hour. Now, can you imagine being a citizen of Coventry and looking and seeing your home is now a pile of bricks? Maybe one of your close family members is underneath those bricks, gone forever. However, he'd been there, he'd walked the streets, he knew. And he did not give false hope. And yet he was also able to say to Britons, which are a phenomenally proud people in a good way, and their resiliency during the early days of World War II probably turned history. So 90% of Coventry is destroyed, and yet the leader is saying, this will be our finest hour. And it turned out that he was right, but he never stopped saying it. I've got a book of quotes on my shelf here of quotes from him during his leadership lifetime. And he could call it the darkest of the dark and be accurate, but he never let go of the fact that he had thorough confidence in his government and in the British people. So that's my first example. Second is not that he acknowledged reality so much, but this was when John F. Kennedy, as the new president of the United States, I believe it's in 1961, where he declared that by the end of the decade, the United States would have put a man on the moon. Now, for those of us, you know, I was nine when they landed on the moon. And so for me, it's easy to look back and say, well, yeah, of course they did. You know, and they landed several times. You know, Apollo 11, Apollo 12, Apollo 14, I think Apollo 15, all landed. 13 had problems, they had to turn back. But yeah, it became a, yeah, okay, they've done that. But in 1961, the United States had never launched a rocket 
above the atmosphere. They'd circled the earth, but they hadn't broken the atmosphere, which is a huge step. Not only that, the Russians had already, who was in a space race with the United States, had already put a person into um, orbit above the atmosphere. So we were behind. And yet Kennedy had the vision and it just took off from there through some really tough and sad times. I mean, three of our top astronauts died in a horrible fire on the launch pad. Um, there was technologies that had never been invented before. How do you put someone, it's 250,000 miles. How do you test a lunar rover? It just all these things. But his vision, yes, right now we're grossly behind in the space race, but I see us winning. And now perhaps to one of the most poignant examples is Martin Luther King addressing a, a crowd of around 500,000 people that stretch from the Lincoln Memorial all the way back to the Washington Monument. They had marched on Washington in protest of some very, very bad civil rights conditions. And in his speech, which... Maybe, Maz, we can get a copy of the speech and put it in the show notes because it is one of the best speeches um, in American history. The speech by um, Patrick Henry back in 1770, Give Me Liberty or Give Me Death, Abraham Lincoln's speech at the dedication of the uh, cemeteries at Gettysburg, which is known as the Gettysburg Address, 263 words, amazing, amazing speech. And then John F. Kennedy's uh, inaugural address, ask not what your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country. And then this speech that King gave, which completely acknowledged the horrors that people of color were going through in this nation. And yet casting a vision I literally, I've heard it a hundred times and I still get chills because he could have just stayed in the negativity and deservedly so. But instead he acknowledged it and said, I have a dream. And that one day black children and white children will play together. So that's, I would say those are my three examples. Thank you, Carl. Those are amazing examples, and we sure learned a lot from them. Thank you for showing them. That's it for today. Thank you once again for having me. And to our listeners, I hope that you learned something valuable today. And if you learned something, please do share them with your colleagues. And we'll see you on our next episode. Thank you for listening to today's episode. We greatly appreciate your support and would be grateful if you could take a moment to leave a review for us on any of our platforms. Your feedback helps us expand our reach and impact more individuals. If you know a colleague who would benefit from listening and learning from leadership experts, we encourage you to share this podcast with them. Also, we'd like to invite you to use the link in the show notes to contact us for more information on our coaching, C-suite meeting facilitation, and leadership training programs. Thank you again for listening. Until we meet again, keep learning and leading with excellence.